Men, we're under attack. On every side, evil forces encircle us and they desire to tear down and destroy that which we stand upon. Our families and our faith, our forefathers are being overthrown on every side. And just as in the days of Isaiah, we are witnessing that justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the streets. And just as it is today, the reason is that there is no man to be found. The question is, how long will we allow this injustice to take place? How long will we relinquish the removal of righteousness? How far will we allow truth to fall in our streets? Where are the men of courage called to fight for the faith? Where are the mighty men who will raise a fist and declare enough? Where are the fearless few who race towards giants, who swing jawbones, who crumble walled cities, who plague evil rulers, and who walk on the water? Where are the men who carry crosses? There's no refuting that something must be done as enough is enough, but too often we look at our neighbor. We point to the pastor or we depend upon the deacon to be that man, and as a result of our pointing passive fingers, Truth has fallen in our streets. There's no intercessor to be found in our day. But what if? What if God's plan for every man was to take that stand? What if each man were willing to be God's man in the battle? What if God has called you to be the one to charge the enemy's camp? What if he has commissioned you to boldly believe and fight fearlessly on his behalf? Well, maybe you're thinking... I, I could never. I'm, I'm not strong enough. I, I, I don't know enough. I'm a nobody going nowhere. But consider the explanation of through whom men are called to be valiant that we find in Psalm 60, verse 12. And it says, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. We are calling all men who are ready to return to the resolute and rigid righteousness of our faith. Men who possess a power and carry a courage to stand for God's word in a world bent on destroying it. Is there anyone here who likes old westerns? John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Randolph Scott, Gary Cooper. I know my grandpa and my father-in-law as well uh, loved old westerns and the old classics, right? The black and white, wild, wild west. And what's not to like about it, right? We have the good guys versus the bad guys. We got guns, we've got horses, we've got... What's not to love, right? The old westerns, what's not to love about them? There's the damsel in distress and the guy comes and saves her at the last minute and all of this stuff. Now, in a typical episode, I'm not bashing old westerns this morning, not yet. Uh, in, in a typical episode, you would watch as a bad guy would stroll into town, he'd start stirring up trouble, and at some point, the bad guy would almost certainly kidnap the damsel in distress. Almost every episode, that's what happens, right? And so he kidnaps her. Maybe he'll tie her to a train track, right? That's a, that's a classic. He'll tie her to the train track. And he come barreling down the tracks is this locomotive about to squash the damsel in distress who's tied and can't help herself. 
And at the very last second, and not a moment too soon, the good guy will come galloping in, right? And he'll have guns a-blazing, and he will take out the bad guy, save the damsel, save the town, while the triumphant dramatic music plays in the background, and the good guy puts his life on the line for everything. Has anyone heard of this scene before? Anybody seen this scene before? Right? We all know it. We, we all have seen it. And yet, as familiar... As this scene sounds to us, the sad truth is that, at least here in America, when it comes down to the good guy risking his life for those around him, that's about as foreign of a concept as you could ever imagine. I'm going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. As unto the Lord, for the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, therefore as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands, listen to this, in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Number one, body belief. So Paul here in Ephesians gives us an analogy, right? He gives us an analogy. If you've been with us from the beginning of this this men's ministry, you'll know that we're not here to tickle your ears. We're not here to make you feel good or give you a pat on the back. Uh, We're not here to make you feel good, pat you on the back, tickle your ears. But we are here, the entire point of this ministry is to challenge one another, to find the places where you're failing as a man and to stick our finger in it until you change. That's our goal here. That's our desire, to make mighty men that God intended us to be. We're seeking men of a higher standard who live according to God's word. And Paul here writes, by the inspiration of God, Paul writes, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So do we really realize what Paul's saying here? What Paul is saying is that the husbands are the head of the wife, the man of the house, the one who is over all, that goes and takes places below. And as the head, as the one who's in charge, the man is the savior of the body that he's been entrusted with. And as the head, the rest of the body is subject to the head. So, husbands, love your wives, give yourselves to your wives, just as Christ did for the church. And Paul goes on to write that no man hates his own body, no man hates himself, but actually loves himself, preserves himself, and does whatever is necessary to protect himself and build up his own body. And so if you're the head and your wife is the body, which you're head over, just like you would preserve and protect your own body, you need to protect and preserve her. Is that what Paul's saying here? That's pretty straightforward. 
So Paul likes this illustration, right? Paul, Paul likes the illustration of bodies and churches and people, right? So we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us that the church is the body of Christ. Some are the head, some are the eyes, some are the nose, some are the... Right? Paul tells us that the church are many members making one body, Christ's body. And it tells us that Christ, Jesus, is the head over his bride, right? So Paul likes this analogy, and we all know it. But what I want us to recognize is this. Paul says that just like Christ is the head of the bride, head of the church, we as men are the head of the body that we've been entrusted with. This has been entrusted to us. Our wives and our children and those around us have been entrusted to us, and we are head over them. We could never read 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul says that Christ is the head of the body and we could never imagine that Jesus as our head, as the head of the church, we could never imagine him letting us down or failing us or flopping, right? We could never imagine him just not feeling like it or not protecting us or not preserving us because he's Jesus. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. And yet, Paul gives us the same challenge. Are you protecting and preserving the body entrusted to you just as much as you believe Jesus will protect and preserve the body entrusted to him. And then Paul here says that we are the head, men. You are here. We are the head. Now, what is the head? The head is where the thoughts, actions, plans, direction all take place in the head. We decide what will or will not go on in the rest of the body. We determine what the body, where the body will go in what it will participate, how it will behave, how it will act, what it will be known for. You'll notice in verse 24 that the wife is subject to the husband, not in some things, not in most things, not in convenient things, or in things that he's an expert of, but the wife is subject to the husband in everything. In everything. Now below... Below the head, we have the rest of the body. So if you're the head, your wife could be the neck, right? It's what turns the head. It's what gets the head looking where it needs to. It's what supports the head, right? That, that's a good analogy. Bible doesn't say that, but she could be the neck. So we're going to make her the neck. So gentlemen, you're the head. Wife's the neck. But then get this. The rest of your body are filled with other members, just like the churches. So your children may be the arms of the body. Maybe your grandchildren are the fingers of the body. Maybe your neighbor is the leg of the body. These people entrusted to your circle are a part of a body, just like the people of the church are a part of the body. So maybe you're not married, and maybe you don't have children. Do you recognize those closest to you, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, those entrusted to you by God are there for you to take as a part of your body and take responsibility for and to have influence over? Those who you are closest to, those you have been entrusted to with your care, make up your body with your head over. And just like Jesus is the head of the many members of the church that make up his body that he's responsible for, men, we are responsible for those entrusted to our care. And as the head of the body, with all of these people in your care, you have been commissioned to do whatever it takes to preserve this body. To love this body, to care for this body, anything that it takes to ensure that this body is cared for, preserved, and protected. If that means warding off a burglar at two in the morning, if that means changing a flat tire on the side of the road, if it means taking a moral stand in a corrupt nation, if it means ensuring your family is in church every time the doors are open, whatever it means for you and your family and your body. 
It's your responsibility because you're the head. Love them. Protect them. Preserve them. Just like you do your physical body. It's sad but ironic that in many of our families, we wouldn't think twice about jumping out of bed in the middle of the night if we heard glass breaking, right? I would hope most of us grab the gun right by the bed, whatever we do. If we heard that, we would jump right out of bed. But do you display the same preservation when it comes to the spiritual attacks of your body, your family? Do you protect them from what they watch on TV, by their entertainment choices, by who they choose as their friends? Sure, we ward off burglars. Sure, we provide a roof over their head. But do you provide and protect for them the same way spiritually? Do you care for her desires and wants and needs? This is just as much preservation as grabbing the gun in the middle of the night. Preserving the family unit, the holy matrimony like we talked earlier, that you and your spouse and God have entered into. Investing and spending time nurturing and preserving what's been entrusted to your care. Paul did not write to us, gentlemen, and tell us to be the fist so that we could beat the other parts into submission. He didn't make us the foot so we could kick their hind ends into right place, right? He didn't make us the mouth so we could chew them out and shout at them and make them see it our way. God looked down at all of the parts of the body and he intentionally chose each specific part and he said, you know what, Steve, you're going to be their head. You know what, Richard? You're going to be their head. You know what, CJ? You're going to be head over this hand and this foot and this arm and this elbow and this finger. They're yours. I'm entrusting you as their head. You protect them. You preserve them because you're the head of that body of parts. God looked down at each of these parts and he specifically chose them for our care. Just like he specifically, the Bible says he predestined Each member of the body of Christ, each person that would make up his body, he chose. And then he placed himself as the head over them. That wife of yours, God hand-selected her for you to be be over. Your children, each of them carefully were given to you to care for, to protect, and to preserve. Your grandchildren, they have been entrusted to you as their head that you might preserve them. Your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, the person on the pew next to you, each of them have been specifically given by God within your circle of influence that you might protect them and preserve them and care for them at all cost. Gentlemen, let me ask you this. If your stomach is growling, what are you probably going to do? I'm going to go eat something. You're going to go stuff your belly full of food. Thank you for your honesty. If your head is aching, what are you going to probably do? You're going to probably go take some Advil, right? If, if you are about to touch something that's scalding hot with your hand and you realize it's hot, what are you going to do? You're going to jerk away. Do we realize that it is a natural instinct? It comes given that we preserve this physical body, that we protect this physical body, that we give and care and provide for this physical body. We don't even think about it. If I'm hungry, I'm going to go eat. I don't even think twice. This is the same kind of care Paul tells us to have for those around us, those entrusted to our body. So why are we not doing the same for the body entrusted to us by God in a physical and spiritual way? And this is exactly what Jesus did for the church, right? We find that Jesus cared. Catch this. Jesus cared for the ornery ones among him and still does, right? He was compassionate for those who didn't deserve it. He had mercy on those who were guilty. Jesus was patient and understanding to those who just didn't get it. 
He went out of his way to care for the outcasts. And Jesus did everything conceivable and even inconceivable for each part of the body that was entrusted to his care. And as a part of the body that Christ was head over, is anyone else grateful that he did so? Is anyone else grateful that since you're a part of his body, he's your head, are you grateful he cares for you that way? Aren't you grateful that he's compassionate? Aren't you grateful he's merciful? Aren't you grateful he just takes such good care of us? But guess what? He says, if you're grateful for that, do the same for the body I've given to you. As much as we appreciate it, are we willing to do the same for our bodies, for our families, for those who we are head over? Because Paul says, this is the belief of the body. Now, I'm going to challenge you a little bit in this next one. Number two, another Adam. How many of you have ever heard that Jesus is the second Adam? We know that Jesus is the second Adam. Now, usually when we hear this, what we think is that As every person was born into Adam, right? Every man comes from the seed of Adam. He was the first Adam. And so anyone who is reborn a second time, a second birth, is born through Christ. And so he's the second Adam. But what I want you to, I want to stretch your mind a little bit here. And I want you to consider for a moment that Jesus actually came to correct and to display what the first Adam should have done. I'm going to paint you a little bit of a picture of the Garden of Eden and how it should have played out had Adam done it correctly. And so we all know the scene in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eve is beguiled by the serpent, and eventually she eats of the forbidden fruit, and the entire world just implodes, right? But imagine Adam's in the garden, and Adam's doing Eden things, and Eve comes up to Adam, strolls up, and she says, Oh, Adam! You've got a taste. I'm not going to talk like that anymore because you won't pay attention. Oh, Adam, Adam. You've got to taste this fruit. I've tasted the most amazing fruit that's just so wonderful, Adam. You just have to take a bite. Are your wives ever excited like that? I want you to try something. Mine does all the time. She's so excited. Adam, you have to try this fruit. You just got to try it. Adam turns around. He sees his wife there. The woman that was taken out of his side, his helpmate, His companion, the one he loved, the one he cared for, the one he'd always been with. Her, standing there, and she sees that she is holding the forbidden fruit that God says they cannot eat of. And all of a sudden, Adam's Adam's heart starts racing, right? He he starts to get a little quiver in his voice as he answers, Eve, what what have you done? Eve, what have you done? Why have you ate of the fruit that God forbid? You know what God said will happen if you eat of this fruit. What have you done, Eve? Do you know the consequences? Eve, you know that whoever eats of this fruit has to die. Eve, what? Eve, what have you done? This should have been Adam's response. This should have been what Adam did in the first place. He should have stood upon God's word and what God had said... And he should have been unwavering and non-compromising instead of joining in the sin. As the story goes on, imagine that God strolls up, right? As we see in Genesis chapter 3, in the cool of the day, God shows up on the scene. And instead of God coming to Adam, imagine Adam just racing up to God. He just runs up to God, and instead of hiding, Adam says, Oh God, God, oh God, it's, it's Eve, oh she... Oh, God, she ate of the fruit that you forbid, God. What a, Oh, God. And God says, Adam, I know. 
And God, you told her, you told us both that if anyone eats of that tree, God, they have to die. God, you, you can't take her from me. God, she's my soulmate. I love her. God, you can't take her. God, please, is there any, God, is there any other way? And God replies to Adam, Adam, there is another way. There is one way, Adam, that she can be saved from the consequences of her sin. There's one way that she can be saved and preserved from justice, which is death, that she is due. Adam, you can give your life in exchange for the one you love. That's the only other way, Adam. Your life for the life of the one you love. This is the thing, guys. Adam's first mistake was leaving Eve alone in the garden. His second mistake was joining her in the sin, but maybe his biggest mistake was not giving himself for her. We learned in our first session that the man, not the woman, but the man, was created in God's own image. And just as we see God becoming a savior... Just as we read of him laying down his life in order to save and preserve the lives of those entrusted to his care, he calls each of us to do the same. Had Adam fulfilled his calling of a man as God intended for him to be, had Adam displayed the characteristics of God like God intended for him to do, he would have laid down his life for Eve, willingly becoming expendable, Willingly paying the price so that Eve would not have to. Well, this is quite a different look at Genesis, right? This is not what we read in the KJV. This is not what the Bible says. This is a made-up account. But consider that this is why Jesus came. This is what makes him the second Adam. He corrected, he rectified the right or the wrong that was done to made right. He came to give his life, to become expendable, to become the Savior for those that he loved by giving himself. He came to do what Adam did not do, but should have done. Jesus is the second example, the second Adam, the perfect example of what Adam was meant to be. Not only by allowing those to be born into him, but also dying for those who believe in him. His life for mine, his life for ours, his sinless life laid down that each person who believes upon him might be saved. That's what it means to be a savior, right? He gave his life for us. What's interesting about the account of Genesis is that it was both spiritual and physical, which is very odd, right? It was both spiritual and physical. Adam should have led Eve spiritually. Not to eat the fruit. God said, God's word, right? God said, do not eat. And so he should have led her spiritually not to do this. And yet, since she did, she failed spiritually, he should have physically laid down his life. It was both spiritual and physical. Yet Adam failed at both. And man, it is our responsibility to protect, lead, preserve your home spiritually just as much, if not more so, than physically. It's great if you provide a roof over their heads and a table for them to eat on. But are you leading them to read God's word and understand God's word? Are you being the example for them to follow? Are you preserving them from the temptations of this world and the lures of the lusts of the flesh? 
Are you preserving them by turning off the filth, safeguarding them from the world around them? Are you preserving them by bringing them to God's house to be a godly, mighty man, to be the head of your body? You are called to preserve those entrusted to your care, not only physically, but spiritually as well. We are called to preserve as Christ preserved, not like the first Adam, but like the second Adam. So that brings us to number three. Expendable example. This is an odd question, but have you ever wondered why Jesus was given a physical body? Why, why, did, why did God give himself a physical body? We know God is a spirit, right? Why did he give himself a physical body? If God is, is all-powerful, could do anything, why, didn't, why couldn't he just pay for our sins in heaven? Why did he have to give himself a physical body? He did so... He literally gave himself flesh and bone, flesh and blood, literally for one reason, and one reason only, and that was to die. He gave himself a body to lay it down. The only reason Jesus was given a physical body, the only reason he came to earth as a man, was that he could give that body for those around him. Give himself to to others. We all know that Isaiah 53.7 says that he has brought us a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers. Why was Jesus born? Why did he come to earth? Well, we recognize that a lamb to slaughter is a person who gives their life in death, right? We know a lamb who dies is slaughtered. So we know that Jesus came to be brought as a lamb to slaughter. He was born to die. But notice what the second part of the verse says. What does a sheep to shearers accomplish? Well, Jesus came to be a sheep before shearers. He came to give of himself while he was yet alive. Give of which he had to those around him, both in life and death. He was expendable. It was a life that never took into consideration itself, but always lived every moment given to the benefit of others. The life of Jesus was a life that directly benefited everyone but Jesus. He gave his time to others. He gave his finances to others. He gave miracles to others. He gave power to others. He gave food to others. He gave knowledge to others. He gave labor to others. He gave unconditional love to others. And ultimately, he would give his life to others. Jesus washed the feet of those around him, even the one who would betray him. Jesus gave of himself. He made his life expendable like a sheep giving what's on its back to warmth others. We could say that it appeared that the desire of Jesus was to return to heaven with an account balance of zero, having given everything away that was given to him. Do you catch that? The goal of Jesus, it appears, is that when he returns to heaven, his account balance of what was invested into him was zero. He expended it all, spent it on everyone around him, bringing nothing back up. I've given everything back to the kingdom, Lord. And guess what, guys? He's called us to do the same. Are you living your life for yourself, for your own interests, your own benefits? Are you using and utilizing your own influence and resources for your gain? Or are you living an expendable life, a life poured out, A life racing towards death 
with the desire to end your life with an account balance of zero, spending everything that's been invested into you back into the kingdom. Guys, honestly, I have known very few men in my life that live this way, if any. Yet this is what a life of a godly, mighty man is called to be. With our families aside, in the church, too often, it's like pulling teeth to get work done for the Lord. It's optional. We're available when it's convenient. The world around us is freezing to death in darkness, and here we are with warm wool on our back meant to be given to others, and we hoard it for ourselves. Bible says, Jesus says, no greater love has any man than to lay down his life for a friend. He lived to die. He lived to preserve those around him and he called each of us to do the same. Take up your cross, follow me, and die daily. Become expendable that others might be saved, preserved, and that they, not you, but they might live. I can just imagine some of your minds saying right now, and I've heard these things in church, all, I've been in church all my life, I've heard people say, but, but if I live like that, people will take advantage of me. If I live like that, if I live like Jesus every moment and give myself away to others, give every resource and attribute, if I give all of these things to be expendable, then some people will take advantage of me. There will be those who, who don't appreciate what I'm doing. There will be people who won't give back in return, and I'll become worn out, and I'll become exhausted, I've heard, all of my life. And so at that conclusion, we hoard the life that's been given to us to reinvest. We hoard the talents he's invested into our lives, dangerously burying them in the ground. But Jesus knew better than anybody what it was like to be taken advantage of. He knew the feeling of being betrayed by the people who were ungrateful and who were superficial. Yet regardless, he gave his life for those who treated him worst. Jesus laid down his life willingly for Judas who he called friend. He became expendable for Pilate. He died so that the Roman soldier would not have to. He gave his life for Josh Sorrell so that Josh Sorrell could live instead of Jesus. He died so that I would not have to. He laid down his life so that I would not have to. And this is the reason that we call Jesus Savior, right? We all say Jesus is our Lord and Savior. This is the reason, right? A person who saves those in danger. A person who saves those at risk, who cannot save themselves from God's wrath, from due judgment. Jesus died in my place, becoming my Savior, so that in his death I might live. And it's so beyond breathtaking and challenging That Paul here in Ephesians 5 says that we, we are to be the man, we are to be the head of the body, we are called to be the savior of the body, savior of our wife as he is of the church. We are called to be the savior of our children. We are called to lay down our lives, to become expendable, to become unselfish, to give ourselves so that we can get our account balance to zero, that our wife and our children and our family and our neighbor and our coworker may live. We are called to be their Savior. We are called to expend our life, empty, pour out our life, in order to preserve and care for theirs. The word Paul uses here 
for Savior is sotar. And literally it means to deliver or to preserve or to save. And this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be the stronger vessel. We are called from Eden, from Genesis, all the way to the cross, all the way to 2020. We are called as God's men to play the preserver. To do anything that it takes in order to preserve and protect those entrusted to our care. Men, what would that look like in your life? What would it look like if you were to expend each and every moment of your life in order to preserve those entrusted to you. The family, the wife, the neighbor, the coworker. What would it look like for you to pour out and to expend your life to save theirs? But even still, men, there's a greater challenge even yet. Consider what Jesus wrote, or said rather, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 40. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Men, what would it look like if godly men would rise up and make our lives expendable for the poor, for the widow, for the orphans, for the imprisoned, for the naked, for the hungry. What would it look like for us to expend our lives to save theirs, to become the saviors so that their lives would be saved? What would it look like if men would rise up and say, I will give my life to preserve the word of God. I will stand in the face of human trafficking. I will be in adversity for abortion. Enough is enough with every ounce of my strength I will give my last breath in order to preserve the ways of God. I will lay down my own life in order that his ways may continue on. What would it look like if your life were an investment into the kingdom of heaven as a savior, as a preserver, as a protector, as a mighty man? How weak our nation has become. Men have become so selfish and so self-absorbed, right? There was a time when men would willingly enlist to go serve to protect those back home that they loved the most, right? Today, men won't even leave their couch for those they love. They won't even be a man for those they love. They will do nothing. Even in the church, men are unwilling to give their lives to preserve those they love the most, let alone a stranger on the street. Men, it's time for us to arise to take a stand, to willingly give our lives, willingly becoming a savior, willingly becoming expendable and laying down our lives so that others around us might live. Will we hold tightly to the lives that are not our own or will we become willing to play the preserver? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, said these words. 
While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out as they do, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. What would it look like for us to become men who play the preserver? Paul writes for us to be the savior of our wives just as Christ was the savior to his bride. Will we play the preserver? We've learned a lot today, and um, my lesson is going to be kind of uh, rubber meets the road, more practical, just uh, kind of living it out. Um, I think everybody here knows this, but uh, marriage is really hard, right? Tom Tom went ahead and admitted the fact, and um, if you say marriage isn't hard, um, you probably just have been, uh, you just haven't got there yet, because marriage is hard, and, um, but, you know, Men and women are so different, um, it takes a lot to get it to work like it's supposed to work. And then that's what the Bible teaches us, is that it can be a beautiful thing. Um, men don't think like women, women don't think like men. You know, we can drive ourselves crazy, but they're not supposed to be like us. And we're not supposed to be like them. Uh, but we are supposed to be what the Bible says. And so, um, I, uh, I, I want to try to, again, make this as practical as possible on, on just how to really apply what God's Word says. But I want to tell you guys a story. Um, I've, I've told this before in church. Some of you may have heard this story before. I heard this story probably 30 years ago. I'm not sure that um, it may have been before Josh was born, but I heard this a long, long time ago. It's really just stuck with me. I've never forgot this story. I just think, and it really kind of is my point that I want to make this morning um, with, with my lesson. But the story is, anybody here ever heard of Zig Ziglar? Anybody know Zig Ziglar? Um, he's the one who told this story, great, great uh, motivational speaker. And he told this story. He said, this man had this daughter, and she wasn't really very pretty. She was, she was not very attractive. And she didn't really have much of any personality. And she didn't have any talents. And she really just didn't have anything to offer. She just wasn't anything anybody would be interested in. And so as a dad, he was thinking to himself, I don't know if I'll ever get this girl married. I don't, I don't know if anybody will ever want her. Probably nobody will. And so he was kind of uh, uh, discouraged about that. Now, this was back in the days that, that, uh, that young men would pay a dowry for, uh, a, wom- uh, for a, a woman that they wanted to marry. And so the dad knew that I'd probably never get this girl married. But if I do... I know the dowry will probably be very, very small because nobody's going to give very much for her because she's not worth anything. And um, so time went on. And in this little village, one day a young prince showed up and this young prince, prince began to take interest in this girl. And the father was just so happy. You know, finally someone likes my daughter. And he knew that uh, even though he was a prince, that really his daughter's not worth anything. So um you know, whatever I get, it will just be, um, I'll be grateful for it. And so the prince comes to the dad and says, I want to marry your daughter and I will give you 10 cows for your daughter. Well, that was unthinkable because a beautiful girl would only get one cow, you know? And so he was just, boy, he was just so excited and so thrilled. And so this prince marries this girl who is very, 
unattractive and who is very un, has nothing to offer and, and really just nobody would want her. And he takes her away and they, and they go away. They're married and they go away. Gone for many, many years. They come back into town, a little small village. Everybody knows everybody. Here comes the prince back with this ugly girl. And the whole town was amazed. She was so beautiful. And she was one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. And she was every man's dream that every man would want to be married to. What's the moral of the story? Uh, the, the line Josh already, um, and I thought it was one of my favorite things in the book, um, God is calling, uh, God's calling for you is to, not to marry the woman that you love, but to love the, the woman that you married. And that's what this guy did. He, he didn't say, I've, I've got the perfect girl that everybody dreams of. He says, I'm going to take this girl and I'm going to make her the girl everyone dreams of. Do you get that? And, that, and that's, what, that's what the Bible teaches us. I think Hollywood and Hallmark and all those great things have taught us that we find this perfect girl. She's got everything right. She's beautiful. She's got a perfect personality. She's talented. She's funny. She's always nice to me. She's always in a good mood. She's always friendly. And I just take her home and I just have a good time. You know, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sometimes the woman that you take home needs some work, needs some love, needs some care. But you can turn her into something that everybody would love. And so that, that's kind of the, the point of the, um, the thought that I have this morning. And this hadn't occurred to me until Josh was up here speaking. But, uh, you know, some of you here are older than me. Some of you are younger than me. But this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. And what I didn't realize when I was Josh and CJ's age, what I didn't realize is that at that time, I was creating a future for my grandkids. You know, I never thought about that. When I, when I was 20 years old, when I was 25 years old, when me and Renee were trying to figure out how to be married and trying to figure out, you know, and then we had kids and we we're trying to figure that out. What I didn't realize is everything I was uh, putting into my marriage would one day affect uh, Kaysen and Callan and Kari and Juliet. It would, in other words, their future was really resting on, just think if me and Renee had a divorce, if me and Renee had a, you know, didn't have a good marriage, if, if all of the different things that could have happened, how that would have affected their future. And so this is important, guys. This is, this is really, really important that we do what God says. So as I looked at the lesson, as I thought about who's here, and as, if you read the lesson yourself, you know, there's a lot of really good things in the lesson. I think in church today, um, I think it's, it's pretty well commonly accepted. You know, if you get married, you're supposed to stay married, right? We're not, we're not supposed to divorce. We're supposed to be till death do us part. And we know sometimes, unfortunately, those things happen. But I think the church understands that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what God's plan is, is for there to be. I think we all understand we're to be faithful. Uh, it's not um, acceptable for Christians to, to step out on their, on their companions and not be faithful. So that, that's kind of accepted. I think to protect and to provide for our, our family, I think that's kind of understood that that's what we're supposed to be. And so all of those things I think are, whether we're acting them out or not, I think they're at least, they're understood by, the, by, the, by everybody in church. Something that has always kind of boggled my mind, in the church it is not acceptable, um, and this is going to be very real guys, so I just warn you before, beforehand, it is not acceptable to leave your wife. Okay, that in, 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 if you're Christian, you're not, it's not acceptable to leave your wife. But it is acceptable to not be good to your wife. 
And there's something wrong with that because uh, not only are we commanded to, you, to stay with our wives, but we're commanded to be good to our wives. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. And, and again, make sure that I make this clear. We've already said it once. This is not about becoming feminine and having feelings and touchy-touchy and emotions and all that. That's not what this is about. But it is about being the man that I'm supposed to be, uh, the godly man that is the husband that I'm supposed to be my wife. So uh, Josh read some of this already, but we'll just quickly go back over it um, in... Ephesians 5, I'm going to start verse 28. Um, I'm just going to do exactly what the Bible says this morning. It says in verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, that he, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So, I have never, ever, ever, ever have I said, I am going to hurt you bad. Anybody ever do that? Anybody ever looked at your hand and said, I'm just going to take a hammer and just start hitting you? It's my hand, right? I'm going to be good to it because that's my hand. My foot, I've never said, I'm, going to just, I'm just going to stomp my foot. The point being, I take care of me because I love me, right? And like if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. If I, I'm not going to do anything that hurts this body because I love this body, right? And it causes me pain to, to not do it. Well, God lays out real clearly here that the way you treat your wife should be the exact same way that you would treat yourself. And, and I think that's just real plain, simple, what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So just putting all that into application, we've got uh, seven or eight things here to go through. I'm just going just gonna to plug in um, how we treat ourselves. And can I just say... Um, to start with, number one, I am nice to me. Has anybody ever seen me be mean to me? <laughs> I'm always nice to me, right? I mean, I'm good to Gary. I treat him good. I, I take care of him. I'm very nice to Gary. And, and I know that's a little bit uh, humorous thinking about that way. But shouldn't we be nice to our wives? Uh, shouldn't we be uh, kind to our wives? Has uh, ever, anyone ever thought about the fact that the person we say we love more than anybody in the world, sometimes we treat worse than anybody in the world? Um, truth is, um, I can be very impatient and I can be very uh, unkind to Renee. And I would do her ways that I would never do anybody else in the church. And, um, but the Bible says that I'm to treat her the way I would treat me. And I'm always good to me. So, uh, uh, again, as a godly man, um, I ought to be um, kind and nice to my wife. Now, you say, well, you know, we hear, we hear things like this. Everybody fights. That is true. Amen? Everybody fight. Everybody here says, I don't ever fight. We, we all, everybody fights, right? We all have bad days. We all, we all have those days. I get that. But the, as Josh said, the bar has been set pretty high. And the bar is, we're supposed to be good to our wives. And uh, can I stand here as a pastor? Can I stand here as, as a man that's been married for a long time and say that I'm always good to Renee? I can't. I, I can't say that I'm always good to There's days I'm grouchy. There's days I'm irritated. There, there's days going on. But I know in my heart, my goal should be every day to be nice to my wife. So um, um, I, I think that we need to try to apply that in our lives. And, and I, if you guys have comments, I will welcome those as we go through these. I'm not going to take a lot of time uh, asking for them, but if you have one, uh, we, you're welcome to chime in. Um, Josh, I think we covered this uh, maybe in the, in the summary, but number two, 
my interests are important to me. You know, everybody here probably has something they're interested in. You know, but Steve's got cars and, you know, uh, different people have different little hobbies, little things they enjoy doing. Um, the things I like are very important to me. You know, if I'm interested in something, I don't have a bit of problem going to the store and buying something for what I'm interested in. Um, I, don't, I don't mind spending a lot of time on things I'm interested in. I don't mind, um, you know, sitting around talking all day about things I'm interested in, right? You know, because it's interesting to me. And uh, now, again, uh, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if Renee is into um, whatever, some, some girl thing, that I have to necessarily do that with her. But my point in this is, we as men can often make them feel like what they want is just not nearly as important as what we want. And, and that's, what, that's what we got to understand is, and so in other words, Renee's interested in some, some girl thing that I have absolutely no interest in. I'm not teaching us guys that we need to, I need to start taking up crocheting, right, or, or knitting or whatever uh, thing like that. That's not my point. My point is, if Renee says I need to go to the store and do something with that, or she wants to talk about it or whatever, I don't make it seem like my interests are really important, guys. But your interests are kind of not that serious, right? And sometimes we just got to do this. And now I've kind of come to this conclusion. Um, you guys can decide if I'm right or wrong. But as I look at all of us, starting with myself, I think generally, when a, I think generally men are kind of selfish. We're kind of self-centered. I, th I think most of the time when a, when a young couple gets married, uh, typically the guy is pretty self-centered and pretty selfish. They're, they're typically thinking about themselves, right? I, if I'm real honest, especially going back to when I first got married, it was all about me. It was what I wanted. It's what I thought. It's, it's what was good for me. It's what I enjoyed. It's what I liked. That was what it was all about. As I've, as I've been married a while, I've kind of got to figure out if this thing's going to work, I got to think about what what's important to Renee as well, not what just what's important to me. So, has anybody here ever seen me yelling at Gary? <laughs> Again, being a little bit humorous, uh, but we, we don't yell at ourselves. We I don't I don't get mad and attack Gary. Um, the number number three is I never yell at me and I don't hold a grudge. Um, now. That, that, again, is a little bit of a humorous uh, uh, illustration. But, guys, we're supposed to be godly men. Now, everybody here has fights. I don't, I don't think there's anybody here that can say I've, I've never had a fight. And, or, and I don't think there's anybody here that can say going forward I'm not going to have a fight. Because we have fights, right? We, we, me and Renee have fights. We argue, we fight, we get upset with each other. Those things happen. Um, but I understand as a godly man that I am, I am to uh, act as a godly man. Now, as a godly man, I sometimes still get very irritated. I sometimes still say things I shouldn't say. Um, but I recognize that's not appropriate. And here is an ugly, ugly word that men just hate. Sometimes I go back to my wife and I say, I am sorry, I wasn't really acting like a godly man. You know, men don't like that. <laughs> men don't like to do that, right? We never want to admit that we're wrong. Uh, some, Tom mentioned about our pride. Um, I don't want to go back. Listen, she's the one who was wrong to start with and she's the one who got me irritated and she's the one who did everything wrong and I was right through the whole thing and because I blew up at her, it was her fault. Anyways, why should I apologize for that? Isn't that how we kind of think? Isn't that how we really think? But the truth is, I am to be a godly man. And, and as Josh said, 
Renee should look at me and say, when I want to see an example of Christ's love, I look at my husband. Does, does your wife look at you and say you're an example of Christ's love? And so um, I, I should uh, be, be conscious of, of, of speaking harsh words to Renee, of, of saying hurtful things to her, of holding grudges. Um, and, that, you know, that holding grudges is a hard thing because um, sometimes your wife can do something that is really hard to get over. Anybody ever had your wife do something and you just couldn't quite forget about it? You just couldn't let it go? You just, days and days and days go by and you're still thinking about what she did that really ticked you off? I'll be honest, I do. But I never would do that with myself. And so we've got to let these things go if we want to be godly men. And we've got to, um, to be good to our wives, to be interested in their interests. And, and we're, we're not going to be yelling and, and, and uh, holding grudges and, and um, being, being violent towards them. You know, as a woman, we talk about often about a woman's, uh, they, um, I talk about all the time, a woman lives on her emotions. And this is a little hard for us guys to understand, but do we realize, you know, and I, I hope this doesn't apply to anybody here, but do we realize that to a woman, um, you know, if, if Tom was to come up and punch me in the face, that, that would, I wouldn't like that, okay, I'll be honest. But if Tom comes up and says something to me, hurts my feelings, it ain't really that big a deal. Do you know it's not that way with a woman? You know, if you can smack a woman, and I'm not going to say a woman's going to like it, but you could hurt her just as bad by hurting her feelings. Now, that's hard for me to understand, right? Well, as guys, we don't relate to that. We think, oh, I did hurt her feelings a little bit. I said something, you know, I, I, you know, it's no big deal. Well, to guys, it's not a big deal. To, to all of us sitting here, you know, hurt my feelings, no big deal, go on. But for a woman, a lot of times when we hurt her feelings, it, it hurts just as bad as if we punched them in the face or slapped them or, or did something abusive to them. So, so we wouldn't do that to ourselves. We shouldn't be doing it to our companions. Number four, if I am not feeling well, I take care of me. Now, um, we want a wife, everybody here, everybody wants a wife who's always happy, always feeling good, always in a good mood, always ready to have fun. Isn't that what we all want? (laughs) Every day, all day, all the time, we want them to be feeling good. But the truth is, when we get married, there are going to be days she doesn't feel good, that she's going to be in a bad mood, that she's going to be sick, that she's not going to be feeling well. Uh, Truth is, I am going to have days I don't feel good and then I'm not um, doing well. And sickness can be very trying. Maybe maybe some of you haven't experienced this yet, those that are younger. Um, But if your wife is sick for a day or two, you can pretty much get through that. You just, you know, you just kind of get through it. But when it lingers on for a long period of time, uh, that can get trying to you. But can I just say this? When I'm sick, you know, uh, most of you know this, I was laid up for almost a year. Renee had to take care of me. Literally, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't get a drink of water. I I couldn't do anything. I I couldn't even bathe. I couldn't do anything for almost a year. And Renee had to do everything for me. And I needed her. And it sure was good to know she was there. You know our wives need that, and and whether it's a whether it's a sickness and they're down for a few days, or it's a long term thing, or whatever it is. The point being, when I'm sick, I take care of me, and when our wives aren't feeling good, it's easy to be irritated or not very patient or not very kind. And you know, and I don't know most of your wives how they are, but there are some women that aren't real great patients, right? When they when they get sick, they're not real great patients. But that doesn't change the facts. I'm still supposed to be taking care of her and loving her. And there's something about knowing that we will be there for one another. So, so when I'm not feeling good, my wife's not feeling good, I need to take care of her and be there for her. <clears throat> Number five, when something is bothering me, I stop everything for it. 
Now, we've already kind of discussed this in the summary thing. Won't, won't maybe take a lot of time unless you guys want to talk about it. Uh, but there are times, if we just be real honest, there's no women here, so we can just be real honest, right? There are times that there is something bothering my wife that I don't feel is very important. All right? Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> I don't feel like it's very important. I don't feel like it's a very big deal. I, I would just as soon dismiss it and go on to something that I care about. Um, but when, when something is bothering Gary, when I've got something on my mind, I don't mind setting everything aside and dealing with what's bothering me. And I understand that women can be emotional. I understand that we don't understand them. I understand all that. I'm not suggesting we play into those emotions or, or um, get on their level. But I, I am suggesting that when something is bothering them, it is real to them. I've said this in front of the church many, many times. Um, I struggle with emotions from women. Uh, but Renee, uh, and so many times Renee's come to me with something that she was so uh, bothered by. And I say, honey, this isn't real. And she said, it's real to me. Now, to me, it wasn't real, but it was real to her because her feelings told her that it was real. So uh, I think to be a good, a good husband, I, we talked last time about, we talked this morning about uh, being the weaker vessel. There are times that our wives are going to be the weaker vessel. They're going to, things are going to get to them that would never get to us. There's times that our job is to be stable, like Brother Terry says, just let them dump on us and we don't say anything, right? And that sometimes, I, I appreciate that comment. Sometimes our wives just need to vent. They dump on us. They tell us, Renee tells me all the time, I just got some, I got to have someone to vent to. So she just vents to me. She doesn't need me to do anything except for listen. And there are times that um, she needs me to be stable. I think someone said it there this, this morning, something about, you know, whenever they're upset about something, sometimes I need to show that um, the strength that we're going to get through this, and this isn't, you know, this isn't going to take us under. But I, so there's a difference between being strong and understanding and uh, falling apart and being emotional. I, I don't think any man should, um, you know, your wife comes to you and, she, and you say, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. What are we going to do? We're never, you know, that's not what she needs. She needs you to be strong and stable, uh, but she doesn't need you to be condescending. And, and I think that, that uh, we all understand that word. It is just making her feel like what she, what she thinks is not very important. And, and uh, how many of you know that women don't take very kindly to that? They, <laughs> that, is, that is something you don't want to do to, to, uh, to our wives. So, Number six, I defend myself. When others criticize, you know, one of you want to start running me down or saying something bad about me or finding fault with me or whatever, there's a real good chance I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to say, well, I didn't mean that or, or whatever. And now this is not a justifying, if your wife is in the wrong, um, I'm not necessarily of the belief that you jump in there and defend her and try and say, well, you know, what, what she, you know the way she acted was perfectly okay. Sometimes our wives are wrong, right? Uh, but... Um, we need to have that attitude to help them uh, succeed. So if they are in the wrong, or if they are being criticized, or if there is something going on, we ought to be the ones that are helping them to, to do better and, instead of pushing them farther down. In other words, we can be part of the ones that are, that are dragging them under. Really what they need is someone to help them come out of the situation they're in. So uh, we ought to be there, that strong rock that, that holds them up and, and helps them overcome the things that, uh, that they're struggling with. And the last one, uh, this is kind of a big one, I think, for guys. Um, I enjoy giving myself things I want. Now, everybody here has got a different thing, but if I were to go out today, today and buy myself a brand new gun, I'd be happy about it, right? I, I would enjoy going to the store, picking out the gun I want, and buying it. I would like that. I would have fun with that. You know, we could, we, you can name your particular hobby, your particular thing, but most of the time we really enjoy that. How many of you have ever had a struggle with your wife wanting to buy something and you thought that was the dumbest thing ever was? 
right? You thought that's just, that's just, you know, that, that's not near as important as my shotgun, what you're wanting to buy, right? That's what you're wanting to spend time on isn't as important as what I do, uh, but it is to them. And we are to become one flesh. We are to become as one. And that means I treat her the way I would treat myself. And so I enjoy giving myself. And it isn't always just even money. Um, it, it can be a matter of, um, again, something that she's, uh, she's interested in that, that takes time or it's going to take a you know, special trip somewhere, whatever it is. If I've got to drive to, uh, to the other side of Mansfield to buy a gun, that's, that's perfectly normal to me. If Renee wants to drive that far to buy something for her cricket, you know, that's a silly. This isn't important like my stuff. And, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, guys. We're supposed to be as one. And so, um, so when we follow the plan uh, and love our wives like ourselves, a strange thing happens. And this goes back to my story about the cows. Um, when that prince came back with that girl, everybody's like, man, you gypped him. You should have gave him way more than 10 cows. That, that girl's worth way more than 10 cows. Here's a strange thing, guys. As we read through this list, if you're like me, you probably thought, I don't really want to do that. That sounds like too much trouble. You don't know how my wife is. She's unreasonable, all these things. But here is the amazing, amazing thing. When we do what God says, guess what happens? Our wife turns into that person that everybody would love to be married to. And, and I think that's a picture that we need to see. Um, I, I think back, uh, you know, marriage is hard, but I think back to when me and Renee first got married. There's been a lot of struggles. There's been a lot of really difficult times. There's been a lot of times like Tom said, are we going to make it? Uh, but, but as time has went on, she has become the woman that, that, that nobody else compares to. For me, anyway, she is uh, her personality, her, the way that we relate, the way that we are one with each other. And so when we follow God's plan, uh, an amazing thing happens that it, it turns into, um, she turns into that perfect woman for you. And I, I, we have people of all different ages here. I, I understand that. And, and I hope that maybe everyone can kind of understand this. But I'm starting to, to really get a hold of this more than I did before. Not only do I have grandkids today that, that I impact on my marriage and that, but um, we are getting older. How many know that? We're getting older, right? And as we get older, um, here's what I'm understanding. When you're 20 years old, you're looking around all them pretty girls running around and all the different ones that seem so much better than your wife and all those different things. But as the years go by, it's nice to know there's someone who's committed to you, to whom you are one flesh with, to whom there's a bond like none other. And as I grow older and as my health deteriorates and as things aren't as they used to be, I've got someone who is my soulmate, not a Hollywood or Hallmark style, but the biblical style. She is one flesh with me. And that's mighty precious when you get older, because um, here's what I know now. I can't go out on the street and find another, another person to replace Renee, because she's become part of me. And I think that's what God teaches we're supposed to. Thanks so much for joining us for another session of the Sand Hill Men's Ministry. We hope that your soul has been stirred and your faith has been fortified in what God has called each of us to be as a mighty man. Men who are up for the challenge are invited to take part live, online, or in person in our monthly meetings of the Sand Hill Men's Ministry. You can also, of course, catch the video of each session or the podcast as a follow-up. For more information about the Sandhill Men's Ministry, to attend our next meeting, or for additional Christian content, please visit our website at www.sandhillfwb.com. Thanks so much for joining us today as we continue on in Christ.